This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Nick Redford, a veteran of this program. We'll discuss his new book, The Real Men in Black. Nick Redford will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full show, become a Veritas member. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, click on the subscribe button, and receive instant access. Why wait? For only $7.95 per month, you can listen to every program, audio and video, hundreds of hours in CD audio quality, and take Veritas with you wherever you go. And visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase our futuristic metal-cased 8GB USB drives, with Seasons 1 or 2, with bonus material, or even MMS. What is MMS? Go to the past shows and listen to Jim Humble's interview, entitled, Jim Humble versus the FDA. And if you want to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website, and also join me on Facebook. Men in Black, or MIBs, as they are sometimes called, are a group that supposedly show up to harass or intimidate witnesses of UFO sightings and related phenomena the government does not want the public to know about. They usually make vague or sometimes specific threats to stop witnesses from talking or sharing information. They confiscate any physical proof of UFO-related sightings, such as photos, artifacts, or audio and video recordings. For the evidence, famous cases, and true stories of these mysterious men and their connection to UFO phenomena, Nick Redfern is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere.
This is Paul Laviolette, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Originally from England, Nick Redfern lives in Arlington, Texas. He is a full-time author and journalist, specializing in a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including UFOs, alien contact, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, government conspiracies, and paranormal phenomena. He writes regularly for UFO Magazine, Fortean Times, Paranormal Magazine, and Fate. His previous books include Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, Strange Secrets, A Covert Agenda, There's Something in the Woods, Contactees, and his latest one, which we'll be discussing tonight, The Real Men in Black, Evidence, Famous Cases, and True Stories of These Mysterious Men and Their Connection to UFO Phenomena. Nick also lectures on the UFO subject both in the UK and abroad. Among his many exploits, Redfern has investigated reports of aliens in Mexico, lake monsters in Scotland, vampires in Puerto Rico, werewolves in England, and crashed UFOs in the United States. And directly from Arlington, Texas, author, journalist, radio host, ufologist, and cryptozoologist, Nick Redfern. Hello, Nick, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's my pleasure. And, you know, in all the years I've been following the, the UFO phenomena, uh, 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 Nick, Men in Black is one of those subjects that always, always has captivated me. And I remember back in 1997 when the movie Men in Black came out, I thought Hollywood did it again. Now, if the real Men in Black are around and are harassing somebody, if that person tells the authorities, they're going to laugh at them thinking that they just saw the movie, don't you think? Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, you know, it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword. I think sometimes, you know, Hollywood sometimes, you know, gives the whole UFO field and paranormal field, you know, a, a good boost because it brings it to the public eye. But you're quite right. The downside of all this is that, you know, when a film covers a, or tackles a you know, particularly controversial phenomenon like the Man in Black mystery, and then somebody has an experience with the Man in Black, the unfortunate side effect is that, you know, people will... And even I understand this, you know, they'll say, well, you've just overdosed on too many Hollywood movies. Exactly. You know, so it's kind of like, on the one hand, it helps us get the word out. On the other hand, it can have this unfortunate spin-off that I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, unless they find themselves actually caught up right in the heart of it, so to speak. For the listeners around the world that may not know, and I really doubt it, but just to make to be clear... Can you explain what Men in Black, and by the way, the abbreviation, the acronym for, for people who, who, who are listening, will be using MIB. What is a Men in Black or Man in Black? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, to sort of focus first on the, the Hollywood imagery, I think, you know, most people, or certainly everybody, I would say, outside of the whole UFO paranormal arena, you know, that they assume that the Men in Black are just a work of Hollywood fiction, you know, yeah. not realizing that the movie itself was was actually based upon a comic book um, series of the same name, which was inspired by real-life reports of encounters with the, with the Men in Black or the MIB. Um, so on the one hand, you know, that, that's where most people's perceptions lie, you know, in the world of fiction. Now, even for people, you know, who are sort of conversant with the MIB uh, mystery, you know, the film itself, you know, the, the, or the films, I should say, you know, they're sort of fun-packed, funny, adventurous films, you know, to be treated as entertainment and, you know, a bit of fun and a diversion. Um, but what they do, they just sort of portray the men in black from one angle, namely that of people in government who are sort of employed by or attached to a super secret group that's keeping the lid on the UFO phenomenon. Now, you know, I point out in my book, that's certainly a part of the mystery. But you know, the, the overall mystery or certainly, uh, you know, far bigger and major parts of it, you know, they portray and the witnesses portray the men in black as far stranger. You know, they they have this same approach as in the movies, you know, going around silencing witnesses, etc. But, you know, they don't look anything like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. They're very often described as sort of small, five foot to five feet, five tall, thin, pale faced, gaunt, you know, shrunk, shrunken cheekbones and bulging eyes that they hide behind these big wraparound sunglasses. And they often exhibit very weird traits and, you know, don't seem conversant with our customs, ways and manners. And this has led to the idea or the theory, 
you know, that the MIB, the real ones, the really mysterious ones, are either aliens themselves or some sort of strange paranormal phenomena, or maybe a combination of both of those and government personnel, you know, the idea that there could be several categories of MIB. So in other words, what seems like a, a simplistic idea that it's either the work of Hollywood or it's just some weird group in government, you know, it, it extends far beyond both of those scenarios. And I knew it was a matter of time before you wrote a book on the subject because you've covered a lot of, of, of ground in your years of, of research. Uh, but uh, recently, since you're mentioning the description of the, the men in black, I had uh, Jay Whitener on the show and I asked him what his favorite um, science fiction movie was. And he said, uh, Dark City. So I watched it. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember the, 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 this, the way they portray men in black there. That's more or less how you describe them. No, you're quite right, Mel. I mean, that that's really... I mean, um, Dark City is a very good film, you know, in itself. You know, it's kind of... It's sort of Matrix-like in yes. some respects. But it's sort of... In my in my view, it's actually... I think it's better than The Matrix and, you know, sort of more thoughtful and, you know, intriguing. But, um, the yeah, the men in black in, in Dark City are far more like the way the real men in black are described. I mean, in that film, you know, they sort of prowl around, you know, late at night, you know, you rarely see them in daylight. Um, they have sort of these long coats, you know, sort of trench coats and these overly exaggerated, you know, in terms of size, um, fedora type hats, you know, that they look like some sort of like a corpse that's just sort of <laughs> risen from the grave and, you know, being dressed in a sort of a nifty new suit or whatever. And everything about them is kind of menacing and, and creepy. You know, they sort of stick to the dark shadows and, you know, just sort of lurk in the darkness and menace and terrorize people and seem to, like in Dark City, they have the ability to exert a fair degree of almost like mind control over the people they visit, where people just let them in their houses, you know, and without giving any sort of forethought to the implications of letting a bunch of guys in black suits and weird looking faces and hats in your house at midnight, you know, but people do that. Uh, and then it's almost like their common sense factors have been disabled in some sense. So I think, you know, it's fair to say that probably if people want to get a good indication of what the real men in black look like, how they act, etc., then they watch Dark City. And, you know, a quick parenthesis, uh, you know, Nick, I've read a, a few of your books and you remind me a lot of the great authors from the 60s, 70s, and even the 80s, uh, like Brad Steiger. I have 13 of his books right here. The, the late John Keel and, and even Donald Kehoe, were they influential in your work? Um, yes. I mean, I would say less so Kehoe. I mean, in, in terms of, you know, reading about the phenomena, um, you know, back even as far back when I was a kid, you know, I was reading the works of people like Donald Kehoe and um, Leonard Stringfield, you know, yeah. some of the early classic nuts and bolts type researchers. But, you know, as time went on, I began to sort of see not just the UFO subject, but things like Bigfoot and, you know, a, a whole range of other things. They didn't just seem weird and elusive. It was like they were almost too weird and too elusive. You know, all these things sort of defy categorization. We never catch them. You know, we never find Bigfoot dead on the road. You know, even if a UFO reported crashed, we never get a piece of the evidence where it can conclusively be shown to be this or that, you know. And uh, one of the things I found over time, you know, was that this is still when I was like a teenager, you know, that um, a lot of these phenomena seem to be somehow interlinked. And so exactly. over time, I kind of gravitated away from the work of people like Kehoe and Stringfield, not because I didn't think the things they were investigating weren't valid, but I didn't think they were seeing, you know, I don't mean the, this to sound arrogant, you know. But that's the entire was, picture. I, they weren't seeing yeah, the entire picture. They were seeing the entire picture. Right, they right. Were, they were certainly showing us a valid part of it, but without the realization on their part that there was more going on. Right. And that is when I sort of gravitated more towards people like Keel, um, Brad Steiger, um, Gray Barker, um, you know, the, the sorts of people who, uh, Jacques Vallée, you know, who realizes sure. a, a real phenomena at work, or phenomenon, however you want to term it. Um, but it was, you know, a puzzle, kind of within a puzzle that had different strands going out in a whole range of different areas. And to address it just from, like, the angle of ufology or cryptozoology or whatever, 
wasn't enough. We had to sort of embrace it further. And so I kind of followed more the work of the people who seemed, whose views seemed to, I, I, I seem to share, you know, and, and I would say it's fair to say that that's carried on since, you know, that if you ask me who I think are the most important and influential people within the field of, you know, the paranormal writing, I would, I would probably say John Keel and Jacques Vallée and people like that, you know, who, who, who don't just sort of pigeonhole things into one area. And you use a crucial word for me, at least on this show. Many people say, gosh, you discuss this and you discuss that. You don't focus. You know, focusing will be just to, to see a tree. I like to see the entire forest. So everything, in my opinion, is interconnected or, as you say, interlinked. But somebody like you, what really prompted you to say, you know what? I'm going to write a, a book on Men in Black. What was that moment that you said, this is it? Well, I think more than I don't know so much as one moment. I think it was more a realization that you know when you work as sort of like an author or a journalist, and you know you do radio and TV, and you know have articles published in magazines and they get read. You know, people contact you with their stories. You know, they want to not just share the stories, but they want hopefully someone who can help them answer the questions yeah. as to what might have happened to them, and. Over the years, you know, of writing books and, and magazine articles, you know, I, you're always sort of scouting around for new ideas and going through the various files and things I'd put together over the you know, course of several decades. Um, I came to the realization that, you know, when I went through all the many black reports I'd got, I'd actually got a large number and also a lot of data that hadn't been seen before and leads to follow up on. And although, you know, there have been a number of books written on the men in black in the past, you know, that they very much viewed the entire phenomenon from a historical perspective. But many of the cases I'd got and the ones I, you know, relate in the book were from the 1980s, 90s, and, you know, right up to like literally 2008, 2009. And, and even within the UFO field, you know, there was sort of this tendency to have where people thought it was very much a historical mystery, you know, one of the 50s and 60s, not realizing that, you know, the, it's still pretty much ongoing as it was in the past. So I thought, well, you know, why not write a book that tells the history of the phenomenon, but gets, instead of just going over old ground, you know, and pulling 50 words from this book or that book, why not go back and do brand new interviews with all the people who were around at the time, like Jim Mosley and Brad Steiger and Alan Greenfield, who are still on the scene today, interview them to get their views on what was going on in the past, you know, rather than just doing the lazy job of copying from somebody else's book. And also present the brand new cases to show that what was going on in the 50s is going on now. And I thought, you know, when I could present both those angles, it was worth doing a new book. You know, nobody wants to read a book where you're just going over old ground. It's just summarizing everything that's gone before. So that, that was one of the main reasons for writing it was that I was, felt I was able to sort of bring something new to the table. So. And you'll be surprised as to how many people, even researchers uh, uh, and contactees, experiencers, Stan Romanek has shared his stories of Men in Black. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe had a, an encounter with a man, in, a man in Black. But in all your years of research, what do you think the purpose of the Men in Black is? Well, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that whether you're talking about the government angle, you know, the, uh, the potential UFO angle, and even if some people think, you know, a paranormal angle, it all seems to be connected with victimizing, frightening, terrorizing, and silencing the witnesses. Yeah. Um, now, that's, you know, that, that seems to be the overriding goal in every single case that we have on record. You know, there's never been a case of the man in black turning up all jolly and laughing and say, that was cool about that UFO experience. I can assure you with 100% certainty that does not happen. Um, but what does happen is just this, as I said, this overriding, um, almost like a programming on the part of the MIB to silence people and to do so, you know, by offering threats, which are sometimes overt and other times are sort of a little bit enigmatic, you know. And, um, and so f from that perspective, I would say that that's the main goal of the MIB. They seem to be, you know, terrorizing people into silence, basically. We'll discuss some of the stories, but, you know, as you were 
talking about how they don't have a personality with humor, which is seems to be absent from the Man in Black. Uh, I think of a story. Was it Tim Beckley? No, it was Alan Greenfield. A story where he he actually confronted a Man in Black, and uh, it seemed to be like a young man. He even took a picture of him and said, uh, "You know, who are you?" And he said, uh, "I'm a Man in Black in training." And he said, "Oh, well, you, you won't mind me taking a picture of you. Tell us that story." Yeah, that, that's a weird story. Now, one of the one of the strange things about the Men in Black, of course, is that you know they're they're so elusive. You know, tracking them down is difficult. Being in the right place at the right time, you know, is, is practically impossible because most in most cases, you know, we get the stories given to us, you know, at least a day after they occurred. You know, worst case scenario, it's a week, two weeks, and with the best will in the world, you know, there's as good as the witness testimony can be. You know, if the MIB visited two weeks ago, there's not much, you know, John Smith or, you know, Bill Smith can do other than tell you what happened. And and that's great, you know, because without the witnesses, you know, they're the most important people in the subject, not the writers, the authors, the people who have the experiences are, because they're the ones who can tell us about the phenomenon. You know, it's my role just to relate it. But if the witnesses don't tell me, you know, know, I might as well write about anything, you know, you you have nothing to do. Um, But... In terms, you know, the, the point I was trying to make anyway is that although the MIB are pretty much elusive in terms of tracking them down, there have been a couple of occasions when they have been captured, not literally in person, but on film. And certainly one of the most classic ones is that of Alan Greenfield, who was at a UFO conference in 1968 and saw this sort of weird um, guy kind of lurking around, dressed in the black suit and... Um, and sort of t- typical hat, you know, the, the black hat. Now, I actually reproduced a picture in the book, but due to sort of color wash and the, the the time it was taken in the day, it actually looks like the guy's wearing a white hat. But in reality, um, the hat was as black as the guy's suit. It just looks like it's, it's sort of washed out in the photograph. But Alan basically initially thought, you know, the guy, because he was lurking around, dressed like this and kind of bringing attention to himself. Obviously, you know, if you're at a UFO conference, you see someone dressed entirely in black with sunglasses and old style fedora, you're going to notice them. Alan wondered, you know, is this some sort of sad, pathetic Walter Mitty type guy, you know, who thinks he's James <laughs> Bond or Austin Powers or something like that. Right. Um, and that that was his initial thought. And actually, he's, he's thought for quite a, you know, for, for most of the day. But eventually, Alan kind of got tired of, you know, this guy's games, etc. And um, during one of the breaks, when they're having on a, a lunch interval, at, uh, you know, on the, which was nearby the outside of the building, Alan saw the guy sort of lurking in the doorway as it opened onto the street. So he jumped up out of his chair. The guy saw him come in and went out into the street. And Alan confronted him and said, you know, who the hell are you? And that's when he sort of made this sort of flat, emotional, uh, emotionless sort of monotone response of saying, I'm a man in black in training. And then Alan said, as you pointed out, well, you won't mind if I take a photograph, which is what he did. Um, Now, you know, even at that stage, you could argue, well, the guy was still putting on some sort of show for his own obscure pathological reasons or whatever. Um, But what happened next kind of took the whole thing away from that. Alan said that, the guy was maybe sort of six to ten feet in front of him on the street. And he suddenly ran around a corner, you know, just bolted. And so Alan, you know, this was sort of 43 years ago, it was 1968, you know, Alan was a young guy, so he bolted after him. And he said, you know, I was literally maybe ten steps behind him. And he said, as he, but as he turned the corner, the guy was gone. You know, there were no lampposts to hide behind. There were no huge parked cars or vans or trucks, you know, where he could hide behind it and then, you know, sort of make his way across the street or whatever. There was just nothing. It was just a blank, empty street on like a Sunday afternoon because it was a weekend conference. Um, And Alan told me when I interviewed him for the book, he said, you know, he said, I would still be inclined today to sort of go down that whole Walter Mitty path if it wasn't for the fact that this guy just literally, and I do mean literally, was gone. You know, he said he didn't see him kind of vanish, you know, dematerialize. But he said, I got around the corner and he wasn't where he should have been. And there was literally nowhere for him to go. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why Alan feels that there's a genuine mystery, uh, an MIB mystery, but it goes far beyond, you know, just agents of the government flashing ID cards or whatever and silencing people. You know, that there's there's something far stranger about it. And that's what leads him to believe, you know, that he, he captured a real 
man in black, whatever that might mean on film. It, it, once again, I think of Hollywood, the X-File, the cigarette smoking man. I mean, that was a true man in black. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, that, yeah, but that's a funny thing. You know, the real men in black. Don't, don't, I don't know if there's even a single report of a man in black smoking a cigarette. Because for the most part, you know, as I mentioned, they seem very unaware of our basic customs. You know, they're, they're actually, there's a famous story of how somebody saw a man in black trying to eat jello and, you know, trying to drink to it. Yeah, tried to drink it. You know, <laughs> yeah. and then there's other stories of people trying to eat, you know, I don't know, you know, just something with, a, with just the wrong tool, you know, trying to eat eat soup, if you like, with a fork or something, you know, and, um, and, and stuff like that, where they just really don't seem to have a full handle on, on our culture or any or our day-to-day lives and uh, and sometimes they ask the most obscure and weird questions that you know aren't even relevant or don't seem relevant to the ufo experience and um you know sort of how many rooms are there in the house and you know also all sorts of strange things how many cars do you own that's sort of, these are literally some of the questions that they come out with and that's one one of the biggest questions I have because you're talking about how they, uh, you know, they have very bizarre or display bizarre behavior. But are they human? And this many people ask, and I ask because they could be extraterrestrial, they could be both, they could be clones. What are they? I ask because I've heard so many stories that they display this is this awkward behavior at times. Could they be clones that were kept hidden somewhere for the main purpose of uh, fulfilling a mission and then returning without, you know, knowing etiquette or the basic, you know, uh, behavioral patterns that a human displays? No, yeah, I think you're quite right. And I think that's actually a very good question or, or observation because, you know, when when we talk to MIB witnesses, it seems clear that it's almost like the MIB are programmed or they're some sort of program you know within the the software itself you right. know that um you know they don't there are many reports where they don't even seem fully self-aware you know it's as if they're like a temporary life form or something that's been you know like a clone literally created to perform a task mm-hmm. and you know they're almost programmed at a rudimentary level to follow this particular scenario you know they're they're dispatched you know it's kind of like you know, a virus getting in your computer, you know, they're dispatched and they follow a particular pathway that causes havoc. You know, in the case of the of the men in black, they turn up late at night on people's doorsteps, bang on the door. And then when the person opens the door, they just enigmatically stand there. You know, they don't force the way in, as you might imagine in a sort of a, you know, a typical scenario. They stand there enigmatically waiting to be invited in. And then the person, as I said, it's almost like they're lulled into some sort of altered state where they invite these guys in they forget to ask for id very often they don't give any forethought to the idea that you know as i said at 11 o'clock midnight they're letting in three sort of shrunken cheekbone zombie looking guys into the home and and then they spill their beans on the entire experience you know it's almost again like a a computer virus where the person has been taken over you know and unless you've got the virus scanner or the removal tools you know it it gets its grips into you. But then when the experience is over and the MIB have made their sort of suitable threat and they've got all the information they want, they just leave, you know, they're gone. And that's when the person starts to return to normality and begins to wonder, well, why did I let them in? Why didn't I ask who they were, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of like when, you know, your your virus scanner has got successfully got rid of the virus and cleaned up your program and it runs normally and logically again. Um, and to kind of reinforce that angle, there are occasions where people have been threatened by the MIB. But when that happens, you know, the person has said, no, you know, I, you're not going to come into my house and tell me what to do, and who I can't speak to, and what I can say and what I can't say. Get out. Now, you might imagine that, you know, if they were sort of fully self-aware entities, they would take the initiative and say, oh, yes, you will you know, you will remain silent or else, but they don't. What what happens in those scenarios, it's like the MIB, have, it's like the program has been crashed. They just don't know what to do. They sort of fumble, they stutter, they become nervous. In some cases, witnesses have said it's almost like they've started to crash, like a diabetic going into, you know, who has, has missed mm-hmm. two or three meals. You know, they, they shake, their legs go wobbly, and they 
offer an excuse and they have to leave quickly. They don't they don't like confrontation in those scenarios. And it's almost like they don't know even how to react or respond because it's not part of the program. So, you know, in other words, the idea that they could be some sort of semi-self-aware clone, which is literally sort of dispatched to perform a task like a biological robot, you know, it isn't actually off that that extraordinary when you read, you know, the sort of scenario that, that comes into play when these guys turn up. It's like the bully. They don't have a program that they're not used to be being bullied back, so they just uh, retreat. But speaking of asking for ID, have any of your witnesses mentioned that they asked for an ID? Well, yeah, we actually do get some reports of ID, but those reports tend to form all into the category where it seems to be the government side of things. But they, but when people then, you know, do a check later on and they try and track the person down, they can't find them. Right. But in those cases, they, they don't, for the most part, look weird. It's With the weirder men in black, they very seldom have ID. They might say, I'm from so-and-so or whatever, but they don't flash anything. If they flash an ID, they generally look like normal people, but they're clearly in disguise. You know, they say, I'm Major Smith from the local Air Force base, and then the person calls up afterwards, outraged that they've been threatened, and there's no Major Smith that works there. So, you know, again, we have sort of these clear differentiations, you know, between, um, you know, the, the one category of man in black and another category. And let's discuss the, the preferred mode of, of dress. A black suit, Black fedora or Hamburg style hat, black sunglasses, black necktie, black socks, black shoes, and a crisp, shiny white shirt. This seems to be a common denominators. This also brings me to the topic of time travel. Not a lot of people talk about this, Nick, but some say men in black are time travelers. And, you know, one of our listeners even asked me, could they be some sort of time cops? Well, actually, you know, I have a whole chapter of that, on that in the book. And again, that was one of oh. the reasons why why I wanted to write the book was because it was, you know, a new theory. Well, not so much a new theory, but it was, you know, people have, a number of books have been written on the idea that perhaps UFOs, you know, aren't coming from outer space, but they're coming from the future or the right. past, you know, some ancient civilization. Um, but the men in black angle really hadn't been addressed to that phenomenon to a great extent since sort of the days of John Keel when he mentioned it. Um, for example, the Mothman prophecies about how sometimes the men in black would would ask you, or, or UFO notes, if you like, alien visitors would ask, you know, what's the time or what time are we and that sort of thing. And so for that reason, you know, I think one of the interesting things is, you know, the idea that the MIB could be time travelers. And uh, one of the people I interviewed for the book about this um, was a good friend of mine and a fellow author named Joshua P. Warren, who's sure. a, a well-respected um, investigator. of does a lot of ghost investigations primarily, but you know, Josh also focuses on many other areas. And Josh has a big interest in the Men in Black mystery. And one of the things he very correctly noted was that in you know, many reports, not only do the Men in Black wear black suits, but the sort of the style of suits they wear are sort of very much outmoded you know, they're almost sort of like the 1950s, you know, sort of tight leg trousers and sometimes even, you know, like the boots, you know, like black boots, like pointed boots rather than shoes, skinny black ties. And of course, you know, the, the biggest point of all, the sort of the 1940s, 50s fedora type hats, you know, which would everybody wore back then and which probably, I guess, went out of fashion sort of late 60s and, you know, early 70s, probably at the very latest. And of course, you know, occasionally you'll see somebody in a hat like that today and you you probably look at it twice but you wouldn't give it too much afterthought you know it wouldn't be sort of playing on your mind all night or whatever yeah it, but, it's the uh, perfect attire to blend in wouldn't you think well that's right yeah i mean that was one of uh, josh's main points really um you know the whole notion of well you know why do they dress in this way and you know you could convincingly argue as josh does that you know if you're a time traveler and you're in the business of in one day, you know, going from 2011 to 1985, then to 1996, then to 1941, then to 1955, then to 1912, the probably the one mode of dress you could get away with wearing in, throughout that entire period is a black suit and the hat. You know, it certainly wouldn't look out of place at all through the early 70s and wouldn't look massively out of place even today. And, you know, Josh also wondered 
maybe that you know something in the far you know in the far flung future if this theory has merit perhaps something has happened you know in our future a big catastrophe of some sort and the records of our time have been largely lost you know maybe the history of the 20th century and 21st century is very fragmentary and small you know we like to think of us as very important maybe mm-hmm. you know we've been lost to the fog of history to some extent and so you know gauging the, the you know the, the clothing of this decade or that decade you know is is difficult and so the, the suit would fit in i mean you you only have to look at for example how quickly fashions change you know it's like you go back to the 1980s i mean give you an example the other night i was watching uh, reruns of miami vice you know where they're, they're dressing like white <laughs> yeah, pants and pink t-shirts you know <laughs> you know you don't you don't see that now and in the same way you know the 70s we like you know the hippie era that sort of thing flower power and that's like just 10 years and then another 10 years and how radically fashions change the grunge look in the 90s right so in other words if they're unsure of certain uniforms or styles in one era let's pick on one that they know for sure would be good and that would sort of not be out of place. And, you know, that might also explain, as Josh pointed out, the fact that the men in black often drive old-fashioned black cars, you know, like 1950s Lincolns with, like, the shark fin tails and things like that. But here's a question. Here's a question. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I can see the wardrobe. I mean, the classy wardrobe that people can can blend in. But how about the cars? Because they, they seem to be driving 1940s to 60s cars. Yeah, that's, that's, again, another one of the weird things about the MIB that, you know, on the one hand, you would imagine they would want to, I, I guess, avoid attracting too much attention. But, you know, by the way they look and dress and the think cars they drive, they they do attract attention, you know. So it's kind of like the ultimate oxymoron if you like in some Mm -hmm. respects but um yeah in terms of the cars what's interesting is that it depends on where they're seen i mean in england they've often been reported driving like 1960s jaguar type cars in in the u.s it's sort of like uh, 50s lincolns and you know the sort of things you would see in some old gangster movie you know sort of like a cool looking you know sort of super long low car um and of course, the big question is, or the big one of the big issues is, they look brand new. You know, they're shiny, mm. they're clean. They look like the sort of thing that you would expect to see. You know, these car rallies with these people who you know restore old cars and and put car shows, show right? Car shows, yeah. Um, but the big question is, you know, where are the men in black getting these from? Why do they consistently look brand new? How is it that when they leave the witnesses' home, you know, nobody else? two streets down the road, remember seeing this weird old black car driving past the house. You know, it's almost like it's almost like they manifest and the car manifests, you know, right outside the front door of the person to create the illusion that or illusion that um that they've just driven there in the black car, you know, but the reality might be that that's part of like a ruse, you know, to and that they've and they in some respect they almost seem to just literally have manifested outside you know and then they're gone again see the question another question i have see the more you answer the questions the more questions i get in my mind say you and i witness a ufo and we start talking all of a sudden we get you know two or or three of these guys and they seem to be travel traveling in in threes in groups of threes what prompts them to come to us you know who communicates with them and where do they go afterwards well that's a good question because you know in some cases we do have stories where the men in black have turned up after, say, for example, somebody's told their story to a local UFO group, and then maybe the UFO group have told the local newspaper, and then right. the newspapers published it. Because particularly, you know, little towns, you know, somebody sees a UFO, in a lot of little towns, there's not much else to talk about, you know what I mean? And, you know, a local person, and let's say if it's somebody of a position of standing, you know, a responsible, respectable person... You know, the the local dusty little town, you know, where not much sleepy little town, where not much goes on. They've got a UFO and, you know, the local cop or ever seen it. You know, that's big news, you know. And so we get stories splashed across the media. And then sometimes the MIB turn up in the wake of the publicity, which would make sense. You know, if somebody in government, in certain cases or for whatever other reason, you know, sees a story that's been publicized, well, then common sense is, 
somebody may then go out and pursue it because it's in the public domain. Everybody knows about it. Uh, or if they monitor the UFO journals and see a story that's been published, that might provoke someone to go out and actively study it as well. But, you know, when you've got something along the lines of a story that's, in many cases, sort of never, ever, I mean, literally never, ever been given any publicity at all. And, um, you know, when it's kind of along those lines, you have to wonder, well, where on earth did they find out about it from? And, and that's that's something that we find, that's like a classic trend in many of these stories that, um they seem to almost anticipate the experience happening to where sometimes, you know, they'll turn up the day after. Or there are even some cases, you know, where, they, where it be hours later the person will get a phone call and say, you know, we understand you've had this experience, we'd like to come and see you. And they haven't told us a single soul. So there's there's clearly, you know, something stranger going on than just just monitoring newspapers or whatever. So. And Nick and I may be using some humor here, folks, but this is really a serious matter. I have uh, one of our listeners from from Switzerland, Nick, showed uh, me some some incredible, absolutely incredible pictures of uh, of uh, orbs and UFOs and the things that we're doing. And he was telling me just to, to make the the story short uh, for the the time that we have, um, the person who had the original pictures came to the United States went to a MUFON meeting, I'm not going to reveal the, the city, but uh, showed the pictures not even half an hour after he went home, and not even half an hour after, uh, black car parked, uh, uh, you know, pulled over, knocked on the door, and the people, uh, dressed in black, I believe, went inside, they knew exactly where to go, they took the cameras, they took the original roles, the, 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 the pictures, and said, don't ever talk about this again. So this is a real uh, ma this is real, folks. Oh, yeah. I mean, th that's a sort of classic example. I mean, you know, more importantly, you know, until you brought it up, I didn't know anything about that case. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't just parallel, you know. It, I mean, it's identical to the sort of scenario I just outlined. And, um, you know, I'll be the f I wish I could provide an answer as to how or why they're able to do that. But, you know, I I'll admit that we have a lot of records and reports, but having a definitive answer as to how they can kind of anticipate and be there so quickly, etc. I mean, that's that's one of the things that, you know, makes the Men in Black mystery <laughs> remain a mystery. So. And you've been to plenty of conferences, and, and you get the idea after you've done this for a while, when you look at that audience and you see the behaviors, you know that there's one, two, or three, or even more in those conferences waiting for somebody who's talking about a very sensitive topic to immediately start harassing. But what is the purpose of the harassment? I, I have many theories in my mind. You know, could it be that they're protecting the, 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 the profit stream of, say, the energy companies? Because if you start talking about the technology, that's threatening to the establishment. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to the government side of things, as it relates to the men in black, you know, I, I think we have to look at several things. One, you know, there's there's clearly so, something about the UFO phenomenon that people in governments or those who know the truth don't want the rest of us knowing. And I think, you know, that as you, you sort of allude to the the economic angle of you know new technologies that could you know bankrupt the oil industries and things like this overnight and radically improve probably civilization for much better. But, you know, sort of the power mongers are the people who they don't want the status quo upsetting. And I think the UFO subject has the ability to do that, you know. And maybe it's the fact that at times the, the, the phenomenon itself interacts at a very deep and personal level, uh, at a personal level, you know, on a one-to-one -one basis with people. And it can radically alter people for the better, you know, sometimes for the worse, but sometimes for the better. And I think governments, again, those in the know, are fearful of the fact that this phenomenon can have a profound effect on the population at an intimately deep and personal level. And they don't want people, you know, sort of flocking to, to the aliens or whatever they are. You know, they want their allegiance to be to be the go to the government. And so I think things like this come into play. Um, there could also be, you know, sort of the religious overtones of, you know, is there anything about the UFO phenomenon, you know, that might alter not so much beliefs in UFOs, but, you know, could it be, excuse me, in religion, but could it be that, you know, some religious events actually have a basis in UFO activity, mm -hmm. you know, rather than 
genuine, like sort of spiritual activity. Whether or not that's the case, you know, I, I don't know. But if there's a if there's a suspicion on the part of people in governments, you know, religion is sort of a we only have to see what goes on in the Middle East, you know, to see how fraught religion can, you know, you know, send people against war against each other. Um, so in that respect, I think that could be an angle. And so collectively, I think governments just don't want the general public getting involved in the UFO subject to a great degree because everything about it from the government's perspective, not necessarily ours, but from their perspective, is problematic. So in other words, anyone getting a bit too close to something specifically profound, you know, let's silence them, let's discredit them, or, you know, let, let's just find a way to keep people away from them. It reminds me of the, uh, because I keep thinking of the possibilities of why this is happening. And I think of Oakham's, Oakham's Racer, you know, tells me that, that these individuals are here to make sure the secret or, or of the technology is kept secret, essentially guardians of, of the oil profits. Because think about it, are the powers that want to be more concerned about contact or about the technology that could render the most powerful industries on the planet uh, Earth uh, irrelevant. And I think of the extraterrestrial exposure law that many people think is is fake, but no, it, it's, it's from July 16, 1969. You can Google and you'll find it. Do you know more about this law, by the way? Yeah, I mean, basically, to sort of summarize it, you know, it's the idea that if, you know, I mean, this is sort of in generic terms, I'll sort of simplify it so people understand, um, is, um, or summarize it, I should say, not simplify it, um, Basically, you know, the scenario is that when our astronauts, you know, we're American, Russian, whoever, um, visit other worlds and, you know, there's a potential, a very real potential for the idea that, you know, we could be, the astronauts could be exposed to alien viruses. Yeah. You know, let's just say they bring, let's just say, you know, they go to Mars and we think it's a dead world, but they find some sort of life and, you know, they bring it back. Well, you know, let's say whatever that life form is, however rudimentary, if it's a living entity of some sort, let's say, you know, exposing that to our world unleashes some sort of virus on our planet. And, you know, the idea is that the human body, which, you know, has resistance to terrestrial microbes, germs, viruses, whatever, would possibly potentially, in a fully, you know, catastrophic fashion, would have no defense at all against an alien virus you know i mean it's like it's it's hard enough for the human body for example to fight off hiv you know which is a terrestrial virus um you know without a, a massive cocktail of drugs each day you know there are certainly if you go back 20 years or more people who are, who are hiv positive then you know their lifespan was far less <clears throat> excuse me than it is today you know people can live a quite a healthy life nowadays and that's a terrestrial virus but it still takes a lot of fighting it off you imagine if we're dealing with something from another planet and this is where the extraterrestrial exposure law comes in you know the idea of literally laws being laid down to where people can be quarantined not just people who travel to other worlds you know and like putting astronauts in decontamination for a couple of days or whatever but people on earth who are exposed to something that might be sort of like a lethal virus from another world. You know, it's almost like a, you know, viral equivalent to the Patriot Act. You know, we can take away your entire rights if we feel, you know, you're essentially exposed to something that could you know, start spiraling and spreading around the planet. Um, you know, on one hand, you can understand that. On the other hand, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's highly ominous that, you know, how interaction with aliens could result in you essentially being taken to the equivalent of some sort of isolated Guantanamo or something like that. Talk about an extraordinary rendition if that happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But the $64 million question, and I, I know this is the question in everybody's mind, who's behind this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a tendency often on people's parts. I think when you're dealing with a man in black, No pun intended. It's black and white. You know, it's this or yes. that. Um, my sort of conclusion, based on all the research I've done, is I actually truly do believe there's several categories of men in black. I think if we look on the one hand at the history of the UFO subject, we can go back to the sort of late 40s and early 50s. And agencies like the FBI and the CIA and the, and the Freedom of Information Act has proven this, did go out and survey and watch 
some of the early UFO researchers. Things like the CIA's Robertson panel actually recommended that the UFO groups of that time be watched, you know, to see if they were trying to spread communist paranoia or whatever, you know, that they were working with the Russians to try and convince, you know, the US that the aliens were communists and, you know, try and take away American morale or whatever. Um, And so, in other words, you know, some ufologists back then may well have got visits from government people, you know, and the the mode of dress of the time was black suits and fedoras. So I think part of the men in black mythology, if you like, or the folklore, however you want to determine it, was dictated by government visitations of that type. And I even think that there are people in government, probably more who deal with the psychological warfare aspect of things, who actually recognize the presence of these weirder men in black, who they may actually not be sure who they are, but they know they're running around. And I think there could be people in government who at times, working on psychological warfare ops, have actually exploited these weirder men in black to the point where they dress like them and they make the odd you know, statements and turn up late at night as a means to cover their tracks. You know, In other words, if they don't want to be identified as coming from this agency or that agency well, let's pretend or let's dress like these weirder guys that we've been told about, you know, and it acts as a good cover. And then, so that's two categories. And I think the third category, and this is where you have a whole range of theories as to what they are, but the third category is this stranger group, the sort of shrunken cheekbone, you know, vampire-looking guys in black who seem to hold sway over people's emotions and minds, etc. And that's the third category. Now, as I said, the ironic thing might be that the government, I'm sure, knows they exist. Whether they actually know who and what they are, other than the fact that they are running around, I'm not entirely sure. You know, it could be, you know, perhaps sometimes we put too much faith in the government, assuming they know. Maybe part of their worry is that they know they exist, that they might be as much in the dark as we are as to the actual origin. But but that that's at least three categories, I think, and that's why... You know, in terms of trying to resolve it, it's it's so problematic because it's not something that can be labelled as this or that. It's it's this, that, and possibly this as well. So, you know, having grown up up in in Puerto Rico in the seventies, I remember during that decade a lot of animal mutilation all over the island. The vampire of Mocha. I, I spent a lot of time in the Yunque rainforest, and I remember in the news one time one farmer was saying, oh yeah, NASA was here researching. NASA? What does NASA have to do with cattle mutilation? So my question to you is, do you think these people may be impersonating government personnel to to intimidate them by saying I'm from the FBI, CIA, Air Force, NASA, or even NORAD? Oh yeah, I, I don't doubt that. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt at all that there have been occasions where sort of mystery people have you know, pretended to be government personnel. I mean, give you an example. Um, the Through the Freedom of Information Act, a particular document has surfaced from the U.S. Air Force in the 1960s, which actually talks about the men in black. It, it, it basically outlines how people have been you know, going around the country, visiting UFO witnesses, threatening them, silencing them, intimidating them, and giving false names and passing themselves off as, you know, major this or colonel that or, you know, lieutenant that or whatever. Um, And the Air Force literally sent out an alert throughout the entire U.S. Air Force saying, you know, we dearly want to know who these guys are. We want to catch one. If you hear any of these reports, let us know immediately or dispatch personnel to try and catch them. So, you know, this is a clear indication that the government not only realized that there was a phenomenon, but they didn't dismiss it as nonsense. They took it very seriously to the point where they were sending memos and memoranda out to, you know, the entire Air Force asking questions as to, you know, or I should say, you know, issuing guidance as to what to do if you hear a man in black story. And I mean, another example, um, the, the FBI have declassified files on the men in black. And one of the most extraordinary files, not just on the MIB I ever got, but probably in relation to the entire UFO phenomenon, was actually a collection of files from 1957 and 58 from none other than the FBI director of the time, J. Edgar Hoover himself, where he actually ordered one of his agents to get hold of a copy of the first book on the Men in Black, which was called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, written in 56 by a guy named Gray Barker. And 
Hoover's notes in there, in the files, say, not, you know, not only did he want to get hold of a copy of the book, but he wanted to know who these guys were running around the country threatening U.S. citizens. You know, were they communists? Who were they? You know, he just didn't know. So, you know, the irony is we often assume the government's got all the answers, but certainly 1950s FBI and 1960s Air Force knew there was a real phenomenon of people going around impersonating military personnel and government personnel, but they didn't seem to have, you know, even the remotest clue as to who they actually were. Isn't it interesting that they have to get uh, uh, Barker's book? And I don't doubt that, that some of these people in the government have, uh, you know, some of your books too for, for reference. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, joking aside, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of people assume that, you know, if you're going to monitor the UFO research community, you know, it's all done by phone tapping, mail surveillance, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But really, you know, the, the easiest way is to buy the UFO magazines, subscribe to the UFO listings, buy the books go to the conferences and just hang out and see who's saying what to who and on what subject. You know, this is sort of like in the field intelligence gathering. You know, intelligence gathering doesn't always involve breaking into somebody's house clandestinely and, you know, pl planting a spy uh, or a bugging device behind a, you know, a picture on the wall. It can just be as easy as just monitoring what the field is saying to other people in the field. And so... You know, I, I think that's possibly one of the reasons why Bark, why, excuse me, Hoover got hold of a copy of Barker's book. You know, what's the easiest, if you want to know what Barker thinks about the man in black, what's the easiest thing to do? Break into his house and risk exposure, you know, if he comes home early while you're trying to plant a bug, or buy his book where he tells you exactly what he says, what he thinks about it. You know, that's, that's arguably the best approach, you know, like a lot of people don't realize You know, it's like, well, we don't want the government to know what we're doing. But by the same token, they're publishing articles left, right and center, revealing the latest things they've uncovered. And if they've uncovered something specifically highly important, and maybe only 10 or 15 people working on a project know that, the irony is it becomes very easy for people in government then to work out who it is that spilled the beans and, and shut down that lead of information. You know, people often forget that, you know, say there's a project called, I don't know, just hypothetically Project Arrow, you know, and, and I publish a story saying, you know, um, Colonel J.R. told me about Project Arrow. And somebody in government reads this and says, well, hang on a minute, you know, somebody's been speaking out of turn because they know there is a Project Arrow. And then they find there is somebody with the initials J.R., let's say, I don't know, um, Jim Roberts, you know, Colonel Jim Roberts. Mm -hmm. Well, they shut down Colonel Roberts' you know, threatening him with losing his pension, et cetera. Yeah. And by, you know, by the fact that I promoted the story, that's actually closed us down to what could be a, an ongoing valuable source of data. So, that's right. you know, that, that's quite often the means by which, you know, we're, we're watched, surveyed and silenced rather than, you know, typical sort of 007, you know, coming into, breaking into your house at midnight or whatever. You know, you'll be surprised. Actually, you wouldn't be surprised. But I have a mechanism that tells me, uh, you know, who's listening to what show on, on our websites, who's downloading. And I laugh every so often because I, I see the, the, uh, the dot mill, you know, Air Force, Navy, you name it. Every triple letter agency listens. But I, I like to see what they're listening all the time because I wonder, is it for entertainment? Or they, are they really trying to find a diamond in the rough and say, you know, we need to look into this? And a lot of my subscribers are, are military personnel from abroad that are interested in this subject, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, one of the things I always say to, about, to people about the UFO subject is that it's important to sort of remain balanced. Because, yes. you know, there's no doubt that there are conspiracies and there's a genuine phenomenon. But, you know, if you're not careful, there have been sort of just, just tragic events where people have got overly paranoid, you know, and every black car that goes past the house is not just a black car, it is the man in black. Yeah, you know, right. Every phone call, if somebody, you know, the phone rings and it rings, stops ringing after the second ring, it's the MIB trying to intimidate you. Yeah. And sometimes a guy in a black suit is just a guy in a black suit. And sometimes somebody, you know, who's in the military, you know, I mean, I, I, have, I have friends who are in the military, I've got friends in the National Guard who deeply interested in ufos uh, i actually have a, a very good friend who works at a military base here in texas and um 
who's massively interested in UFOs and, you know, I don't know, I can't say, and I certainly wouldn't say that he uses his works computer to, you know, access the daily websites, like UFO updates or whatever, but, you know, he accesses them. So, but, you know, I, you know, there's nothing sinister about his role. You know, he's just a guy who has an interest in UFOs and happens to be employed by the military. Now, that doesn't take away the fact that on occasion, you know, I'm quite sure that military personnel engaged in monitoring the UFO subject you know, they have to check out different sites and things like that, and they keep tabs on them. And I think they do, I sometimes think they do it openly because they realize that there's plausible deniability of just saying, well, you know, yeah, it was John down the, you know, down the office who's interested in UFOs, so what? You know, they can use that as a plausible deniability that it has anything to do with, you know, official monitoring. Plausible deniability, two very important words, but we have to take our one and only intermission, uh, Nick, but before I, 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 we take the break, just El Yunque, you know what that is, the, the rainforest in Puerto Rico, I spent a long, long time there, it's one of my favorite places in the world, and those who listen to me know I have an overdeveloped sense of wonder, so ever since I was a teenager, I tried to sneak in in every possible crevice in that forest and believe me when I tell you that there are parts that are forbidden for anybody to even cross in the 60s and 70s they they used a agent orange during the Vietnam War to, to test how the foliage would uh, react they use radioactive poles to see what the population around the area how they would react and they contracted cancer uh, so they have a lot of stuff there and some people may wonder if they may have a, a, a laboratory there that may be uh, responsible for the, what we call vampires or even chupacabras. But we'll take that on the other side. Nick, how do people get in touch with you, your work, and, and your book? Okay. Uh, people can contact me at nickredfernsbooks.blogspot.com or I have a Facebook page. If people just um, just you know type Nick Redfern into Facebook, they'll find me. And, you know, I'm always happy to chat and, you know, talk to people and I always try and respond to emails or messages within 24 hours. And, you know, people got questions or they want to relate stories and, or just, you know, looking for information. You know, always happy to chat. I'm not one of these sort of standoffish, oh, I'm an author, yeah. own types. You know what I mean? I'm, yes, yes, yes. Interact and whatever. So. You're not a hermetic. You're, you're an open door kind of a policy kind of person. And I have to tell you, folks, whenever Nick writes a book, I am always excited to, to receive it. The Real Men in Black, evidence, famous cases, and true stories of these mysterious men and their connection to UFO phenomena. If you have a UFO library, it would not be complete without Nick Redfern's books. But please don't go anywhere. We have so much more to discuss with Nick Redfern about Men in Black. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We'll continue this interview with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the members section. Enjoy.
This is Walter Cruttenden, and you are listening to Veritas.